The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. If you have your copy of scripture, if you would go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. We are getting into the meat of the, well, I mean, really from beginning to end, it's meat, but we're getting to the part where it's the theology meets our practicality. We are learning of all the things that we know because of chapters one through 11. Now, what does life look like? How do we practice that in Christian fellowship specifically? And so Paul starts off this really strong section of practical life, living tools for us as Christians um, in chapter 12, those first couple of verses that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where he urges us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then he urges us to have this process happen within us. That's the renewing of our mind. So he sets that, that's kind of the standard. So from that, he begins to talk about what does that renewed mind look like for someone? What does it look like when we practice a renewed mind, when we practice making our bodies a living sacrifice? Obviously, when he talks about our bodies, he's talking about the physical. When he's talking about our minds, he's talking about somewhat of a spiritual mindset. So in other words, when, when we are changed spiritually, when our minds are renewed because of what God has done, because of what his word commands us, and through the power of the spirit, we have the ability to live it, what does that practically look like in the physical. So then he begins to talk about those things. And last week we looked at the first section, which is verses three through six. And in three through six, he gives us this mental picture of, of how we are designed to benefit one another. Paul loves to use the human body as this example of how each member has a different purpose, but they all work in conjunction with one another to uh, achieve goals and to do things. And they work just perfectly with each other. They don't get jealous of each other. They actually benefit each other because of their different levels of giftedness. And he talks about how the church should be the same way, that we are all gifted. We shouldn't be jealous of anyone else else's giftedness, or um, we shouldn't uh, you know, want someone else's giftedness. We, we, we shouldn't look at their giftedness in any kind of disdain because it's different than ours. So when we think about what Paul's talking about there, he begins to bring us into that point of practicality. Now, verses seven and eight of last week, specifically, he starts to give these tasks, if you will. Um, this is what we have to do in order to live out this renewed mind, this offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. So these tasks we notice involve a lot of hard work. And Paul wants us to prepare ourselves for this hard work. In essence, he wants us to roll up our sleeves and he wants us to get ready to work. It kind of has that feeling as you move through that passage, as you read those verses that he's talking about, all right, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Let, let's, let's add laying those things out. Because Paul is saying that each one of them, each one of us, we need to figure out what role that we are going to play in this kingdom of God that we have been saved into. And we each need to get after it like we would any other project. I mean, when you have this goal, this desire, when you have this ambition in life, um, you know, most of us have a plan also to achieve those things. Notice I said most of us, okay? Maybe not everybody. Some of us have very lofty goals. We have no idea how we're going to get there. We think it's just going to fall in place. But those of us who are wise, we have a lofty goal. And Paul, in essence, is saying the same thing. We know that this is what we want to do. We know this is how we've been gifted. We know that this is what we've been called to. We know this is how we have been empowered 
power to do these things. Therefore, let's set out on a logical path to do it. Let's plan it out. Let's think through that plan. Let's dedicate ourselves to the plan. Let's get up early. Let's stay up late. Let's expect to get tired. Let's stay committed even on those days when we really don't want to do those things. Let's push through that because this is of the utmost importance. Do you kind of feel that as Paul says these things? And a lot of times I think that we as Christians think that the Christian life is optional. I mean, I I can show hospitality when it's convenient for me. I, I can be kind to others when I'm in a good mood. I can be generous when I feel like being generous. But we shy away from thinking of the Christian life as something like a project where, you know what, whether I want to do it or not, this is where I'm going. This is important. This is what I have to push through. And that is the context that Paul is creating here. See, for many Christians, they only live out the Christian life when they feel like it or when it's convenient for them. But Paul's making it very clear for us, the Christian life is not a hobby for us. It is, it's a calling And so whatever it is that God has called you to do to serve the body of Christ, you should do it with great zeal. Whether it's making coffee, it should be the best tasting coffee around. Why? Because you want it to feed the body of Christ. You want people to come in and have a good experience. Why? Because it reflects, right? So you may even volunteer to do the coffee, but you don't even drink coffee, right? But you know what you're going to do? You're going to get some people in there going, hey, taste this. What does it taste like? Too much? Too little? What, is it, what, is, what does coffee taste like for good people like you, right? You know, so you're starting to ask. Now, obviously, there's diverse opinions on what good coffee actually consists of. And I would not be a good person to ask because my favorite coffee comes from the Pilot gas stations. I think, to me, it's just the best that's out there. And you, you may have Starbucks. I'm a gas station coffee person because I don't really have taste buds that much. So... Um, Whatever it is that you're called to do, whatever position that you're working in, you should do it with great zeal, not just filling in a slot, not just volunteering, but doing it with a purpose, with an idea, with a goal in mind, pouring everything that you have into that. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. You're serving his body, his bride. It deserves that kind of dedication, that kind of eagerness. If you are a teacher teaching a class, whether it's children or youth or adults, you should pour over whatever it is you're going to bring before them. You should think through it. You should back up and look at the big picture. You should pray through that. You should spend time asking the Holy Spirit to speak clearly through you. Why? Because this is serving the body of Christ. And so over and over again, no matter where you find yourself in this, we have to understand that we are living and operating and working for something greater than ourselves. So now that brings us to verse 9. Paul says this, and we're going to look at 9 through 13 today. Let's look at the whole passage here, and then we'll look at it verse by verse. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So that's a list right there, isn't it? I mean, he's getting after it and he's throwing that list up there 
very quickly. And he just basically, if you look at this in the actual language, Paul rarely even supplies all the grammar that we need to even make sense of these statements. He is just like machine gunning it at us, okay? He's just throwing those things out there and saying, this is what apparently genuine love looks like. Because that's how he starts it off there. Look at what it says in nine, the first part of nine. It says, let love be genuine. So Paul introduces all those other things that follow within the context of genuine love. Let love be genuine. That's the first statement. Everything that flows after that seems to be Paul going back saying, this is what genuine love looks like. Okay? The word genuine there, in the Greek, it's the word anipokritos. And it literally means not hypocritical. So the word genuine, you could say, let us not be hypocritical in our love. Let us be genuine in it as a positive way of saying not hypocritical. And, and the word there actually comes from uh, the theater. Uh, the word is actually used to depict the mask that many people would wear in theater back in the first century. When they would take on a different character, they would put another mask in front of them. They would ask it, uh, act it out, and then when they had to do another character, they would just change it, and they would put another mask up there. And that's the, literally the word that Paul is using right there. So Paul is saying that we should never put a mask of love over our face, over who we are, and pretend to care for other people. Okay, But this creates a little bit of a dilemma for us, doesn't it? Because we would say things like this. Well, if I really don't like someone, then how can I love them? And yet, if I am commanded to love them and I try to act like I do, isn't that the very definition of being a hypocrite? And so from Paul's perspective, the answer to this lies in the fact, listen to this, Love is more about what people do than how people feel. This is where Paul is coming to. Love has way more to do with what you do than how you feel. Paul is saying love is a decision that you make, not a feeling that you have. And so you may not feel all that genuine towards the person. Love is demonstrated when you make a decision to act in love rather than always letting your emotions dictate what you do and what you don't do. This is the essence of really what Paul's going to talk about here. It goes back to a parable that Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. He shared this parable of two different sons. They had this father, and the father asked both of them to do something. Look what it says there in verse 28. What do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind. He went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Right. Why? Because obedience isn't necessarily about how much you want to do something. It's about, are you doing what you've been commanded to do? So there's a difference in hypocrisy and doing something that you've been commanded to do. Here's the difference. Hypocrisy is more about me acting a certain way in front of you, saying certain things in front of you, and my life doesn't back those things up. 
That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when I talk, but the actions are never there. That's hypocrisy. So when he says, let love be genuine, he's not saying, well, don't ever go out there and serve someone even though you really don't like them because that would be hypocrisy. No, he's saying, don't put on that fake smile and say, oh, aren't you a lovely person? And then turn around and talk trash about that person. That's hypocrisy. Because you say one thing, you've put on this mask in front of them and you turn around and do something completely different. Listen, our hearts aren't always gonna wanna love people. How many of y'all are married? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's the closest relationship you will ever have on the face of this earth and yet it is full of turmoil. If I only loved my wife when I wanted to, it would be a horrible marriage, okay? But what happens is we have to learn to love despite the fact that we may not feel like loving at that moment. And I don't think anybody would call that hypocrisy. If I'm doing what I've already committed to do, that's not hypocrisy. That's following through. And so if we are called to live this kind of life, if being involved with the Spirit of God and our growth process of sanctification involves us acting a certain way, then you know what? No matter how we feel, we should act a certain way. Now, obviously, we're not talking about acting outside of the Spirit. We're not talking about someone who has no relationship with God, who's spending absolutely no time with God, who's not committed themselves to the word of God, who's not committed themselves to Christian community where they are getting rebuked and encouraged in this growth process and them going out and doing spiritual things to make themselves feel better about themselves. That's not what Paul's talking about. Matter of fact, he connects all of this in this passage, right? With being fervent in the spirit. Why? Because it's only when we hear the spirit of God that we know to be obedient to what God's called us to do. It is the spirit who guides us. He is our counselor. He is our guide. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who convicts us. He's the one who prompts us. And so it's only through this relationship with God, focusing in on it, hearing from him, growing in that relationship, growing in my understanding of him, growing in my understanding of myself in relation to him, that I now know what he's calling me to do. And I become obedient because I'm sensitive to the spirit. And the spirit is, is the entity in my body that I am yielding to, whether it's my thoughts or actions or attitude, I am always coming back going, wait a minute. If I'm walking this Christian life the way I'm supposed to, I'm constantly thinking, filtering everything I do through that. Now, do we do that perfectly? No, we're we're sinners. We still struggle in this world. We still struggle with the flesh, with the sin that's all around us and some of the sin that's still within us, within the way that we think from that old man that keeps wanting to get up out of that grave, right? Paul talks about that over and over again. It's a constant battle that we fight. Yet what we are learning to do is more and more believe what God said is true, yield to his spirit and depend on his wisdom instead of trying to make things happen ourselves. We are in essence learning to truly live with God being God instead of us being God. It's a desire that we've had from the very beginning. It's it's the lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve, you could be just like him. What was he really selling them? You can control your own life. You can make your own decisions. You can go by your own passions. You don't need him. And that, that little lie has been passed down from generation to generation and we still want to embrace it. Even as Christians, it is still there and there are days and times when we want to say, you know what? I think I know better than God does. I think I can be my own God 
and I would do a better job with my life. Even though cognitively, we would never say that publicly. What happens in the deepest, darkest parts of our being, that lie still gets whispered and we still believe it. And sometimes we embrace it. And Paul is saying the way you avoid that is you throw yourself full along into this process of sanctification. And you commit yourself to this process of the kingdom of God and seeing the kingdom of God grow in this. So, so we know that we are called to that kind of commitment. However, the flip side of that is that there is always that temptation to claim virtues that we actually don't have or don't use. Oh, yeah, I'm a very merciful person. I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a generous person. Uh, if anyone asks anything of me, I think about it, you know? <laughs> I, I consider those things. You know, but don't you understand what I'm saying here? That the genuineness of being generous is the fact that without anyone ever asking, that you are actively seeing and pursuing meeting needs. So it's not claiming, oh, I'm a generous person. Oh yeah, I, I don't hold on to the things in this world tightly. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, are you a generous person in attitude? He's asking, are you generous indeed? So, so a lot of times we claim these things that we are, but what Paul's saying is, are you actually practicing those things in life? Does your actions actually follow what your mouth or what your mind think about who you are? You see, the New Testament writers, they were consistently looking for sincerity, especially when it comes to this idea of love. Love is foundational to salvation, is it not? I mean, our whole salvation is based on the love of God. And even beyond that, it's the foundation of the life that we're expected to live. Let love be genuine. Before you do anything, let your love be genuine. Why? So it's the foundation of salvation and it's the foundation of Christian living. So this is the way that the early church thought of love. They thought of it in the context of meeting people's needs. What do you see in Acts chapter two? As soon as the church starts, what do you see them talking about? I mean, in chapter two, it says that they're selling little things around the house and they're contributing money and they're taking care of people's needs. By Acts four, they're selling houses and property and land. I mean, they're not getting more stingy. They're getting more generous. Why? Because for some reason, they felt compelled to take care of each other in a world that was very volatile towards them. See, this is important. And this is the importance of our prayer life and the process of our spiritual growth because it is through prayer that we are able to decide and follow through with helping someone who's in need, regardless of whether we like them or not. And it should never be this cold and methodical response either. It is the right action always followed by the right attitude. That's what Paul's talking about, the love being genuine. Why? Because when it's the right action, it's what God has led us to do or he's told us to do through his word. And the right attitude is, I'm doing this as unto the Lord. Not because I love or hate or anything this person, I'm doing it because this is for Jesus. This is for my Lord. And when I look at the cross and I see what he did for me, how in the world could I hold anything back? from a need that God has opened my eyes to. Now, does that mean you meet every single need that comes to you? No, that's not being obedient. 
uh, there was a, an entrepreneur, a very wealthy man, and I had a conversation with one time, and he was talking about all the different people who come to him constantly asking for money and how he's, and, and basically in, in, in the context of our conversation, I said this, I said, you know, do you know that if you give money haphazardly, that you're as guilty of sin as if you didn't give a dime? And he looked, he like, what do you mean? I said, well, Paul tells us that anything that's not done in faith is sin. Faith is based on our relationship with God. I said, if anybody comes to you and makes a request, you should say, man, thank you for coming and making that request. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to go seek the Lord. And if he leads me to do it, and I'll follow through with that. But if he does, I said, you know what? It takes the whole thing off of you. It's not about you or how generous you are. You're following what the Lord is leading you to do. And, and he came back to me a few weeks later and said, you know what? That was revolutionary for me. And he said that there was this one organization that kept asking him for money. And he went back to them and said the very same things that I said to him. And he said they were kind of back on their heels for a moment. And he said they came back within a couple of days later and said, you know what? We were wrong. We, we were in sin. Uh, he said, I'm gonna be honest with you you are the easiest target for us because you are a very generous person. And I was guilty of going to the easiest because I'm trying to get things done. And I just know that you're a very, and you know what? I wasn't doing the due diligence of allowing other people to invest in this ministry. And you know what? I made a few phone calls to people who I'd met along the way and they were so generous and they gave exactly what I was asking you to give. And I thought how powerful that is to say, you know what? Just because I'm wealthy doesn't mean I have to meet every need out there. I need to be as diligent about how I'm handling the Lord's money, it's not mine, how I handle the Lord's money to meet needs because he needs to bring those to the fruition of my mind of how those things are to be stewarded, right? And so this is the way that we have to understand our calling within the church. Whatever your giftedness is, it needs to be operated within the power and the leading of the spirit of God. So we can't wait on our emotions we can't wait on our motives to become pure to do anything, right? So, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so guess I'll hold on to this $100, you know, because I just really aren't, I'm not feeling it. Man, if we were always waiting for our motives to be pure, we would never do anything. We would never get anything done because rarely do our motives and our emotions ever follow through with things of the spirit, which require us to give of ourselves. So the renewed mind, in essence, as Paul has laid this out for us here in chapter 12, the renewed mind, because it's being led by the spirit, it's filtering things through the word of God, it makes a decision that says, through my relationship with God and in relation to the word of God, this is how I should live. Therefore, I step out and live that way. And the renewed mind leads the heart and the heart follows. But if we wait for the heart to lead, the heart is deceitful above all things. The, the heart is the center of who we are and the heart can't be trusted. The renewed mind can be trusted. So therefore we go with what we know is true and right and good. Why? Because we see it in God's word and we know it from our relationship with God. And then what happens is as we step out in faith and we begin to do these things, even though our, our motivation may not be there, it may not even be perfect, what happens is the heart will begin to follow. Have you ever done that? Ever had an experience like that? And I've, I've had that a few times where there's someone who I did not like, but yet a situation came up and my heart did not want to go and serve that person. But yet my mind said, this is what the word of God says. And the spirit inside of me was going, you know, pulling me in that direction. I was going, and then all of a sudden what happens is you give in to what the spirit is leading you to do. 
And what happens is your heart begins to change towards that person. Maybe you, you realize something that that person dealt with in their life, in a relationship they had, and you realize, you know what? I realize now why they're so cold, why they're so calloused, why they do the things that they do. And all of a sudden, instead of being critical, you become very compassionate. Why? Because the renewed mind said, I'm gonna do what my heart doesn't wanna do. And then what happens? The heart follows the renewed mind. This is exactly the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. And so look at very clearly what he says at the end of chapter, uh, verse nine. So at the beginning, he says, let love be genuine. And it seems like from that point forward, he's given a definition. What does genuine love look like? Here's what it looks like. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, love what is good. First, we have to hate what was evil. And then we have to literally, as he says it there, we cling to, hold fast to what is good. So love is very different than romanticism, right? Love is very different than infatuation. Love makes decisions based on very cognitive processes because we know this is right and this is wrong. This is true and this is false. This is holy, this is unholy. This is righteous, this is unrighteous. So, so cognitively, Paul is saying love is very thought out and very logical. It's not the way we typically think of love that is moved by emotions. And so true love has this deep hatred, Paul says, for everything that is evil. Why? Because evil is the absence of love. Evil is what robs the world of love. And therefore, if we are genuine in our love and we know that love is what breathes life into our existence, we will naturally hate things that are evil. Now, naturally in the sense of supernaturally. Because right naturally, our hearts are going to make excuses for evil, especially evil that pervades our culture. We'll go, well, you know, they're not like that all the time. Or, hey, you know what? Who am I to judge? Or, you know what? The, you know what? The, the church is supposed to be loving and accepting of everyone. And so, you know what? We, we really should. Yeah. What happens is we start making excuses for evil. And Paul says very clearly that we should hate evil. I think what Paul is saying here is that everyone who really loves with true Christian agape love, unconditional love, will have this holy hatred for everything that's evil, everything that is absent of that love. But not only do we hate what is evil, Paul says here that we should cling to what is good. Now the word cling there carries the connotation of being glued to something, literally stuck to it. So it's the closest connection you could possibly come up with. Hate what is evil, cling to, glue yourself, attach yourself permanently to what is good. So the Christian's attachment to the good in this life is a very solid one, Paul is saying here. It's not a casual approval of, you know what, that is a good way to live. You know what, that, that is a good thought. Hey, that's a good way to uh, base your life right there. No, it's not like the approval. We are committed to this way of goodness. Our whole lives are wrapped up in it. They are glued to it. Again, this kind of genuine love is more than a feeling. It has both a fierce hatred of evil and a resolute commitment to what is good. You see, in our churches, people are often offended when they believe that they've been slighted either in their position or in their person. 
some, some authority that they had and someone has undermined their authority or, or something they believe that they are as a person or a way that they should be respected and that's been slighted in some uh, form or fashion. And I love how one commentator responds to this. He says, the, the insistence on position and rights rather than privilege and responsibility is the seedbed in which a variegated crop of evil flourishes. Now, what's the difference in those two? Think about this. Position and rights, this is who I am and you should respect it. I have a right to be treated this certain way versus privilege and responsibility. Man, it's a privilege to be a part of the family of God. It's a privilege to be gifted with spiritual gifts. I have a responsibility to use these gifts properly. God has called me to serve. All of a sudden, evil can't exist in that arena. Do you see that? See, in our churches, people are often offended when someone undermines them in some way or another. But actually, Paul says, use that as an opportunity to let your love be genuine. And so that's the picture that Paul's painting for us. That's where he's bringing us to. And so where we focus on the good that is being brought forth in other people and having this keen awareness of our own deficiencies, that's the right perspective as we move forward in our spiritual growth. There, there's a culture that's created when we think like that that makes it very difficult for evil to thrive in. In other words, if I make myself more aware of what's wrong with me and I focus in on what's right with everyone else, it's very hard for evil to flourish in that. When we stop operating in the natural and we allow the supernatural to develop within us, we are able to live out this formula of genuine love that Paul presents for us. Another commentator says it this way, concentrate on his good points and my bad points rather than on my good points and his bad points. But which one do we naturally do? Naturally, I focus on how good I am and how bad you are. But what he's saying is, if you don't want evil to flourish in your life, focus on what's wrong with you. And no matter how difficult it is, find something good in that other person. And you know what? I, I, I've gone through this before. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but it was a situation where there was just not a lot to love in this individual. And I remember thinking very positively of myself. I'm thinking how dedicated I am, how much of a servant I am, how much of a lover of people I am versus that person. And I literally found myself going, you know what? There is nothing good in that person at all. And it was almost like the Lord, I'm not saying he spoke audibly to me, but it was almost like he was leading me through this process. You know, Jack, is there anything good in them? I can't find a thing good in them at all. And then he says, whose image are they made in? And you know what? Sometimes that may be the very only thing that we find. But if that is neglected, then we have demoted someone below humanity. If we don't recognize, at the very least, we are all created in the image of God. Therefore, if we are created in the image of God, what I may not see openly has to at least have the potential within it. See, what happens a lot of times, we make judgments only by what we see instead of the potential that exists inside. 
And that's where we have to say, you know what? I've got my own mistakes. I've got my own demons. I've got my own faults. I've got my own sins that I struggle with. But you know what? I see that person. And even though they're not living their life right, and even though they're making very poor decisions, even though they might be arrogant or whatever it is they're struggling with, there is potential within them to be used mightily for the kingdom of God. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. Are those kind of people that you saw them before they met Christ? And you would say, man, there's a, there's a great candidate for Christian ministry. No, I have to remember those things as well. See, the sad reality is that we have become too familiar with a fallen culture that is shaped by the lack of genuine love that Paul's talking about here. So in turn, what that does is that puts us into the state of tolerance where we are way too readily accepting of whatever the popular sin is of the day. And that's how we get into the condition that we are in our culture. What Paul wants to make very clear is that we are to abhor what is evil. Why? Because it is the enemy of everything that leads to our growth. Abhor what is evil, not because you're better than that, not, not, not because that you are better than another person who has embraced that evil. It's because it destroys life. It destroys opportunity. It destroys potentiality within us. And therefore we should hate the things that are robbing us of all the good that God wants us to experience. And so the words that Paul uses here denotes this continuing action. It's not a one-time do this one time and you can check that off your spiritual to-do list. Matter of fact, one commentator says it this way. He says, what God seeks in the believer is not so much a single worthy act as it is a continuing quality of life. Your love should be genuine and it should grow in its genuineness day in and day out and day in and day out. And verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So if love is to be truly genuine, it will center especially on the brothers and sisters of the Christian community because we are devoted to one another, right? We're devoted to one another in brotherly love. And so the language that Paul is using here centers in on the church as a loving family. Believers are to feel absolute devotion that families should feel towards each other. And this is actually very unique to Christianity. I was thinking about an illustration of this and I'm gonna give you one from my personal life with my two boys. So both of my boys play baseball. Colin is, he'll be 12 in July, Caleb is seven. So Caleb plays in peanut, machine pitch. You know, you just go up there, there's no pitcher in the league. You just draw and it goes in and they swing at it and they get six pitches. If they hit it, great. If they don't, they struck out and they go back to the dugout. Colin has been a very good baseball player and he has grown in, in his ability to play baseball. And uh, Caleb has struggled. Uh, part of it was he didn't like to wear his glasses when he went up to bat. And I was like, buddy, it's gonna be hard to hit the ball if you can't see it. <laughs> and so he would start wearing it. He started off actually really good. And then he just went into a nosedive. And I'm telling you, he struck out 13 times in a row with a pitching machine. And he was as downed as you could possibly go. Don't want to play baseball. I'm not any good at this. Everybody hates me. I'm hurting my team. Those are the things that he was saying. And here's what I noticed. And it really hurt my heart because I heard his older brother feeding it. I can't believe you struck out that many times. I can't believe you missed that ball out on left field. You know what? You, you ended that whole game. Finally, I pulled him aside and I said, dude, 
I said, what are you doing? He's like, what? I was like, all you're doing is feeding the negativity in his life. I was like, what kind of brother is that? I said, listen, Colin, the back of your jersey says Hester and the back of his jersey says Hester. And as far as I know, we are the only Hesters in this entire park. There's nobody else. Not like the Smiths, right? We are the only Hesters out here. I said, so as much as you want to just kind of make yourself feel better by belittling your brother, I said, what other people see is, wow, I wonder why he's not as good as his older brother. His older brother must not spend any time with him. His older brother is a great baseball player, but yet he's struggling. I said, what he does is a reflection on you, whether you're out on that field or not. I mean, we had this long powwow. So anyway, I mean, he, he, I could tell it was getting to him. The next day, I see this out my front door. Go to the picture. He took it seriously. He's like, you know what? I do owe him something. I do have to feed into his life. And there he is, that little man trying to catch that ball that his brother's trying to hit to them. Look at those balls laying all over the field. That shows you how good a hitter he is. How, I mean, how many of them are closer to him than they are to the little man, right? <laughs> oh, but that's the picture that Paul is trying to paint. Do you not realize that we are a part of the same family? We're not just associated because we attend the same church. If you understand what Paul is saying here, we are brothers and sisters and the way we act reflects on each other. Matter of fact, the Jews had this idea that we are all brothers. It was a concept though that Christians took over. They applied it to themselves, but they took it even deeper. Matter of fact, the idea of brotherly love is not found anywhere but among Christians. They saw themselves as a family in a very special sense. God was their father and they were all brothers and sisters. Therefore, they were united in a love that other people saw only in those of a natural family. Therefore, you got a need, what, what, what's your need? How can I meet that? What can I do for you? Is it convenient? No, it's not always convenient. But you're my brother, so I gotta do what I gotta do for you. Paul is underlining this truth that Christians are members of one family and that accordingly they should have a warm and fervent love for each other. They should be a family, not only in that formal sense, but in a sense that is marked by that genuine love that's not seen anywhere else. Following on all of these references to love within the Christian family, there, there's no doubt that Paul is telling us and, and more specifically here telling the Romans, don't promote yourself, right? Outdo each other with honoring. Here's another thing to this story right here. So I, I see this and I'm thinking, oh, did it really get through? And so I snuck out on the porch and I'm sitting there listening, you know, unbeknownst to them. And I hear Colin saying to Caleb, man, you're getting better at this. Man, you're, you stopped that ball. Good job. And I hear Caleb say to his brother, well, the only reason I'm getting better is because you're such a good big brother. You know, and what I was thinking was 
here, I mean, this literally happened last week, okay? So I'm not pulling this back from the files. This literally happened last week. And as I was studying this, I was like, this is literally an example of this. They started outdoing each other with honoring. Man, you're getting real good at this. You're stop, you're better than I am. Oh no, I'm only good because you're such a big, good, big brother taking care of me, teaching me these things. That's the picture that Paul is creating is when we see each other truly as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't help but out eat, outdo each other with honor. And so to honor the other person is one way of holding in check that innate human tendency to honor oneself unduly. So the picture there was Colin, you know, I'm better than that. You strike out all the time. You do this, you do that. Uh, that's our natural tendency, isn't it? To promote ourselves. And so what Paul is saying here is to honor that other person is holding in check that natural tendency to promote ourselves. In other words, each of us should not be centering on our own personal status in our community, the community of Christ. But what we should do instead is to go out of our way in honoring each other. And this is desperately needed in our culture of personal achievement when most of us feel unappreciated. Do we not a lot feel unappreciated at work, at school, at church? So to go out of our way to affirm others is one of the most powerful ministries you could possibly have within the kingdom of God. There was a story of a little boy um, he had a learning disorder. It made him a little different than everyone else. He rode the bus to school, but the kids would always make fun of him. You know, they were making fun of him in a way that he didn't even really realize they were making fun of him, but they were making fun of him. His mother heard him when they were getting off the bus and waiting at the bus stop. And anyway, Valentine's Day came around and little Chad wanted to make Valentine's for all of his classmates. And his mother just, her heart sunk inside of her. She was like, this is going to be so bad because he's going to, I know him, he's going to spend time and effort and he's going to make every one of them. And when Valentine's Day comes around, he is not going to get a single Valentine. They're not going to give him anything. And so he's going to go and hand all of these out and he's going to get nothing in return. But he was adamant about it. He said, I want to do this. So she went and bought all the supplies and he spent two weeks preparing 30 different Valentines specifically for every person in his class. And so she loaded the whole thing up and she sent him to school that day and she put him on the bus and I mean, just she, she was a wreck inside. She went home. She said, I'm going to make some cookies and milk because this is going to be a long afternoon. And, uh, and then when he came home, uh, he got off the bus. You see all the other kids get off and they're walking. And, and here he comes and he's empty handed. He's got only his little books. And, you know, her heart sinks inside of her. And uh, as he gets closer, um, she hears him saying, not one, not a single one. And inside her heart begins to drop because she was like, oh, it destroyed him. And his next words were with a smile. I didn't forget a single one, mom. I remembered everybody. Now that is a perspective that only a small child could really have because we as adults, we see the problem there, don't we? But the picture here is when we go, we go out of our way to honor others, very rarely do we notice ourselves not being honored. There's something weird about that that only makes sense in the economy of God because it doesn't make sense in the economy of humanity. 
Because in humanity, we all are about our rights. And we have rights, and this person has rights, and they should be able to do this, and they should be able to do that. But in the Christian community, it's not about rights as much as it is responsibility. We have responsibility to each other, to honor each other, and to outdo each other with honor. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Zeal, the word zeal combines the ideas of swiftness and diligence. So be quick to do this and be diligent. It's like this idea of I've got a task and I'm not going to stop until I get this thing done, right? I don't care if it takes me all night, all day, all week. I'm going to stay at this until something is accomplished. It's a very important part of our commitment to Christ as we follow him. And so the word slothful, that signifies indolent or lazy. And so Paul is telling the Romans that where zeal is needed, we need not be lazy people. And so the flip side of this is that you keep, in order to keep your spiritual fervor, you have to be diligent with some things. You have to go after it. It's actually better translated set on fire by the spirit or to be a glow with the spirit. So it's a picture of a fire that's consuming or a pot that is boiling and it's boiling over. So when we are consumed with the spirit of God, all of a sudden we are not looking and focusing on ourselves and what we are not getting or being how we're not being treated by others. What happens is what God is doing in our life begins to overflow to the people around us. And so the spirit is the key here. The spirit must have complete control of our lives for us to be engulfed in this power source, this flame this heat, that this, this boiling point that, that takes whatever's inside of us that God is doing and overflows it outside of us until it begins to impact the people around us. See, it's very important that the human spirit be on fire. But Paul is not just referring to something that happens by some natural process. Actually, it happens because the spirit of God is inside of us. And Paul ends this sentence right here with serve the Lord, right? serving the Lord. This is an all-out devotion. Serve the Lord. The word serve there is literally like a slave. There is nothing half-hearted about it. There is nothing about it that says when it's convenient, when I feel like it, when my emotions line up with these things. You see, when we yield to the Spirit, the result is always going to be serving the Lord. The opposite is true as well. As we serve Christ, we are always going to be filled with the Spirit of God because that's the only way we can be obedient to Christ. And so in a sense, every aspect of verses 9 through 13 is about Christian service. So this encompasses the whole list. So once evil is hated rather than treated with, with this uh, courteous civility that's so common in our culture, and, and the good is firmly embraced rather than regarded as the convenient evil that we so much tolerate over and over again. Um, when, when we see that, when we embrace those things, all of a sudden, this progress that Paul is painting for us as we grow in our spirituality becomes more and more logical. When we do these things that he's calling us to do, when we embrace this way of living, the work of the Spirit within our life produces much good and our soul begins to 
conform to that image of Christ, it begins to grow more and more this affection of good in our life and in the culture around us. And it develops this hatred towards evil. Now, this hatred is not this hatred that spills over in violence. It's not a hatred that spills over in, I'm better than you are and you need to clean this up. It's a hatred that says, oh, there's so much more that you could be living for. There's so much more that God has for you. This is so frustrating that you are giving in to something that is not gonna produce what you're looking for. Does that make sense? That's the kind of hatred that the the scripture is talking about there. You're, You're squandering your potential. You're squandering all the goodness that God wants to put in there because you're embracing these things that are never going to deliver on the promises that you think they are. And so not lagging in diligence, but fervent in the spirit begins to take over. And so both of these expressions, they depict for us this this all out attack on anything that looks like... um, lukewarmness to go from, from a biblical point of view. That lukewarmness of I'm neither hot nor cold. I'm just kind of in the middle. I just kind of go with whatever's happening around me. No, this is a picture, this exciting picture of someone who is zealous for their faith, someone who is white hot, someone who is loving out of a firm conviction and a deep commitment. And that leads to verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. So our hope is in God's control. Rejoice in hope. We know that God is sovereign over all things, right? We know that he's sovereign over human history. So therefore our hope is in God's control of the future. And that makes it possible for us to be joyful despite our circumstances. You see, in God, our hope is actualized and our future is secure. We know how this thing ends. We know the life that there is to come. We know that there is a reward for those who remain faithful. And we know that we can remain faithful because he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. So it's about his faithfulness, not about ours. And so in God, our hope is actualized. And Paul knew that this doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. So he follows it with patient in affliction. So hope is needed. Why? Because this life is filled with difficulties. And the word patient there, don't don't be distracted by that because that's actually a word that means endure. Now, if you go back to chapter five, verses three through five, Paul actually tells us that when we endure, it leads to hope. So in the midst of suffering, perseverance becomes the midst of hope that is our response to the difficulties of this life. Both joy and hope are characteristics that are embraced by New Testament writers over and over and over again. We see these concepts in almost every single book of the New Testament. So the early Christians, they often had very little to be joyful about. They were in prison. They were marginalized. They were thrown out of cities. They were not allowed to buy and sell in the marketplace. And so they had a lot to be mad about, very little to be joyful about in this world. But nevertheless, as it says in Philippians 4.4, they rejoiced always, Paul says. Rejoice always. And they knew Christ was in them, literally as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, was the hope of glory. Christ in me, in you, the hope of glory. What is glory? Glorification. Where does that happen? Later on, there's something beyond my circumstances. 
This is not the final chapter. This is not how it will end. I will walk through this. See, it's not the hope itself that's the object of the Christian joy. It's actually that which being what it is inevitably leads the Christian to rejoice always. And again, I say, hope lifts him out of this present difficult circumstance. Rejoicing is the inevitable result of this process that Paul has created for us through these verses. Patience, that gives a wrong impression because we, we can think about patience as some kind of passive putting up with things. But the way Paul uses his words here, right here, he's talking about a very active, steadfast endurance. So in other words, it's not just sitting back and letting my situation just overwhelm me. It is applying all of these truths within that situation. And so I am active in my patience. I am doing the things that God has called me to do. I'm believing the things that God's called me to believe. I am pronouncing and saying the things I know to be true because God has told me these things are true. So I am active in my patience in these difficult circumstances. And this is needed. Why? Because that kind of patience is needed for that kind of tribulation. Because the word he uses for tribulation there means not just a little inconvenient circumstance. He's talking about dire circumstances. And you know what? I know there are families who deal with all kinds of difficult situations within this congregation. We have wayward children. We have disease and sickness that has inflicted many of us. We have parents that are aging. We have divorce, bad marriages. We have fractured families. There's a lot of difficulty that we bring into this room every Sunday. And with that being understood about every single one of us, all of a sudden, when we think of ourselves as a family, it makes more sense when he says to us, bear one another's burdens. Because as a family, we say, you know what? I know you're going through a difficult time. I'm gonna walk with you through this. What, what does that look like for us as Christians? What does that look like when we begin to practice these things with one another, with the difficulties that we know are in this room? Many of us, we know what other people are dealing with. You see, when God keeps us secure, this doesn't mean that he protects us from the difficult circumstances and inevitable consequences of sin, either ours or someone else's. Trials are a very necessary part of our Christian life and our Christian growth. They actually stimulate our faith the New Testament tells us over and over again. So call, Paul calls us to be faithful in prayer within those circumstances. And a diligent prayer life is the only way that we can handle those difficult circumstances. Why? Because it's not about just being a good person in a difficult situation. It's about having a relationship with God. The only way we can have a relationship with God is through prayer. So you know what? When you go through a difficult circumstance, don't dedicate yourself to being a better Christian. Dedicate yourself to having a stronger relationship with your heavenly father. That is the power source. Don't ever neglect the simplicity of this because it is why Jesus died. Remember what happened when he died on the cross? The veil was rent from top to bottom. Why? So that we could now go into the presence of God. Yes, he died for your sins. Yes, he died so that we could experience joy. Yes, he died so that we would have a future. But right here and now, it's so that you can go into the presence of God and have a relationship like we had in the garden. 
You can walk with him in the cool of the morning. You can lie down and talk to him at night. You can ask him to tell you the things that you need to know, to lead you, to give you discernment. The scripture says over and over and over the things that we have and are ours in our relationship with God. And what do we do so often? We try to be good Christians on our own. We forsake the one thing that gives us the power to actually do what scripture calls us to do. And then we get frustrated and go, you know what? Christianity can't be real. Because if it was, I wouldn't just keep hitting these dead ends all the time. That's because you're trying to do something and you don't have the power to do it. Where do you find it? Fervent prayer. Paul himself said, how do you pray? Paul said, pray without So it's not just getting up 10 minutes early. It's literally practicing the presence of God. Lord, uh, you know, I I see this person over there. I don't know why my eyes are drawn to them. I don't know if they're sitting there across that that way. Lord, are you prompting me to speak to them or something? Maybe I just pray for them. And, and, you know, it's amazing. It sounds weird because you're sitting over there, you know, at McDonald's talking to yourself. To everybody else, that's what it's looking like. But you know what? It is literally staying in this attitude of prayer. It is saying, God, there are opportunities around all the time. People are hurting everywhere that I go. And you said that I am a representative of you. I am created in your image. Therefore, I want to reflect your good character. Lord, lead me. Open my eyes to what's happening. Lord, don't let me step in places I don't need to be, but keep my eyes active. Just as God is a mercying God, he is constantly actively looking for people to show mercy to. If we are a reflection of God's character, wouldn't it make sense that we we also are active in wanting to show mercy. Paul has a lot to say about prayer. And we don't have time to go into all that, but I'm telling you, this is the power source. And the word faithful that he uses there, it doesn't even really capture the force that Paul's word does in that original language. Listen to what one commentary says. It says, the strong word suggests not only the constancy with which they are to pray, but the effort that is needed to maintain a habit so much above nature. So we are left in no doubt, but that persistent prayer is a necessary part of the Christian life. Let's be honest. Most of us will confess that maintaining a regular and constant, and shall we even add the word effective prayer life is very difficult, right? Why? Because we really do have an enemy. And the enemy really knows that prayer is your most effective tool. Therefore, if you really have an enemy and prayer really is your most effective tool, what that enemy is going to do is distract you away from the most powerful tool that you have so that you try to live this Christian life on your own, so that you are unaware of God's presence in your life, so that you are unaware that you have the greatest invitation to walk into the very presence of God and have a conversation and walk with him in the cool of the morning, just as Adam and Eve did. He wants you to forget that, to neglect that, and he wants you to concentrate on being good. But you can't, you can't, you can't be good You can't be good without a prayer life. 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If we genuinely love each other and we are devoted to one another, we're going to share with God's people who are in need. So in Paul's teaching, 
there is a set of three concentric circles that represent the different contexts that this genuine love is displayed in. The first one is uh, the own family. And I'm, ta- I'm talking about Paul's larger work, not just right here in this passage, but if we were to study the theology of Paul over and over again throughout all of his letters, he basically says we have three responsibilities. We first have a responsibility to our own families. James says the same thing. Um, We secondly have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we thirdly have a responsibility to the community at large. Paul keeps saying that over and over again. Matter of fact, this section deals with how we are to treat each other. Beginning with the next section we'll pick up next week, he's going to begin to tell us how you deal with the people outside the church. So hospitality is the one that he hits on here. Notice that Paul connects with this, the command to seek to show seek to show. Underline that in your passage here because it literally means practice it. Or if you have practice, underline that and put seek to show. Okay, put the other one so that you know the emphasis there, right? Because the emphasis is that this is something I'm active in. Not something that if someone comes over and says, hey, can I uh, stay at your house sometime? Sure, come back May 15th and uh, that should be a, a good convenient time for us. Now, that's, that's not what he's talking about there. He's saying that hospitality is an outgrowth of love. It's a requirement, number one, of leaders in the church. In the first century, hotels were few and far between, right? Um, the Jerusalem Hilton did not exist. So in those day and time, you know, even if there were one, they were actually really bad places to stay. Matter of fact, in in a lot of the Greek plays, they would make fun of hotels and inns because they would say the best ones were the ones with the fewest cockroaches. So they were known to be very deplorable, dirty places. So whenever Christians traveled, especially people like Paul who were always traveling and starting churches, very often they were dependent on hospitality of other Christians to be able to make it. I mean, you think in this day and time, you were very dependent on the generosity of other people. Uh, One commentator says it this way, Christian hospitality must inconvenience us more than that of the world. We do not choose our time or our guests. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? In our culture of privacy fences and what is it? The ring. Somebody pushes it and you're like, you can see who's on your door and you can just pretend like you're not home. You know, we have all the technology to avoid people. But yet Christian hospitality calls us to embrace people. It says, you don't turn away that person if they show up at your doorstep. You embrace them and say, you know, what can I do for you? Then yes, you have to also exercise wisdom in that, right? You're not gonna take a complete stranger that you've never seen and say, yeah, sure, there's a bunk bed in there with my kids, you know? I mean, there, there, are, there is limits to the hospitality. But you gotta remember here, Paul is talking about Christian. Christian. It's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we know, people that we are in fellowship with. So it's not just talking about some stranger who shows up on your doorstep, but it's talking about us as we go through difficult times. How do we show hospitality? Do we only do it when it's convenient or do we do it when it's needed? Well, let me ask you this. How does God respond to your needs? Does he respond when it's convenient for him? Or does he respond perfectly as the need develops? I love, you know, I always talk a lot about Jim and Mary Mather, but I think theirs is probably the greatest example of Christian 
ministry being hospitality. I mean, Jim and Mary are the epitome of what a pastor should look like to people. And these people, international students, come from all over the world. And if there's anyone who needs someone to show them hospitality, invite them into a home, it's people who are far, far away from their home. And yet, what do they do? They open up their homes. And I've heard stories from Jim and Mary. Uh, students show up at 3 o'clock in the morning. They'll call them from all different places, all over Mobile, sometimes even outside. And uh, they need something. And you know what they do? They don't say, call back at a more convenient time. They do it. And it's sad that there are so many ministries like that and so many people, and yet the burden falls on two individuals. If we truly practice what Paul is saying here, he's saying it's a part of who we are. And I'm not saying everybody inundate Jim and Mary. Like they, they probably don't need 300 volunteers. But um, we all have a place to serve. And we all have the potential of hospitality. And when we think about what Paul is saying here, think about how powerful a church would be if we just practice just these few verses. Think about how powerful it'd be if we really tapped into our prayer lives. Think about how powerful it would be if we had a holy hatred for evil, but this, this, this obsession, this glued tightness to good. What, what if we really treated each other with hospitality? What, what if our love really became genuine? Let's say only the people in this room. That's it. I mean, Jesus took 12 people and changed the world. Think about the potential that exists in here. You see, we always think it's somebody else's job. And, and listen, I said we, right? I'm in there with you. And this has probably been one of the most convicting passages and I'm, I almost don't wanna go any further because, I mean, you talk about interrupting your life and being inconvenient. I mean, this, this is what it's calling us to. And so we either say, yes, this is what God says, or we say, nope, I have my own way. I'm gonna be my own God. I'll make my own decisions. What has God said specifically to you today through his word? How has God used Paul's words to encourage growth in your life? What areas need growth? Some of us need to hear the command to be patient in suffering. Some of us, more than others, need to be prompted to engage in true Christian hospitality. But you know, these aren't just commands for certain situations. What Paul is showing us here is that these make up a lifestyle that we should pursue. I hope that sometime in the rest of your day, your busy day, that you'll read these verses over again and that you will really see and embrace the very simple, no-nonsense approach that Paul has here to empower his readers to Christian living. In particular, I think that we should go back to verse 9 and let's look at what he said there at the end. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But does it get any more plain than that? Any more simple? Any more clear? There's always going to be choices between good and evil in this life. And we need to remember that we are living either interacting based on our emotions and our feelings or we're interacting and living based on what the Spirit is leading us to do. We are not just to be good, 
because in the next passage, Paul takes it even deeper as he challenges us to live for good in such a way that we become the example of how to live for the entire world, not just each other. Do you see how Paul is expanding our perception of what it means to be a follower of Christ with each passage? He starts with the theology and he takes a long time to develop it. And then when he gets to practicality, he starts with, you've got to make a decision to be a living sacrifice. You have to dedicate yourself to having your mind renewed. And when that begins to happen, the world literally begins to expand around you of what God wants to do through your life. But if you don't do that first process, all you do is you stare at your little life and you're like, woe is me. Look at these difficult circumstances. Oh, I'm just never gonna get through it. Lord, just help me through today and help me get through this. And you know, all we do is look and we see and we just, we just, we just over and over again, just allow it to, to um, commandeer our thoughts and, and our, our perspective of life. And then what Paul is saying here is the best way to remedy your situation is to take your eyes off of it and look around you and commit yourself to serve other people. And when Christians really begin to live in Christian service, all of these things begin to work out beautifully. Let's pray together. God, thank you for such a powerful passage that instructs us to godliness, Lord. Lord, we could, just, we could spend hours just open up microphones around the room and talk about how this hits us, how um, it moves us, how it motivates us, how it convicts our hearts of what we have been so stale in for so long. And Lord, the one thing that really hits me, maybe even two things connected together, is that the hating evil and sticking myself to good, but all within that context of constant prayer. Lord, literally the epitome of the Christian life lies in those truths right there. And Lord, as we grow in our understanding of you and our embrace of you, Lord, you will show us how we are gifted, how we are to be a blessing to other people, how we are to be a blessing to your church and how we are to be a blessing beyond the walls of this church. And God, I pray that as you have redeemed us, may you continue to redeem others. Lord, we don't want to continue to grow this church through the demise of other churches. We wanna grow this church because you are saving the lost. And there's no way that the saving of the lost will come into this place unless we are going out and we are hating what is evil, we are loving what is good, and we are investing ourselves in fervent prayer. God, open our minds and our hearts to these truths and Lord, by the power of your spirit, will you help us to embrace them and to live in them, in Jesus' name.